frame it as um, taking calculated risks, right? I'm not doing things that I think are going to put myself in harm's way or really do things just for the hell of doing it, but really trying to think like, what is the big picture and what are the ways to get there? And of course, I think in a lot of cases, that means doing things that are inconvenient. Welcome back to Cognitive Evolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So I'm really excited to introduce this week's guest. Um, usually on this show, we have people who are relatively established in their careers. Um, you know, people who have been movers and shakers in the field for uh, a long time. People who, uh, you know, have tenure on their academic path. And this person is a little different. And uh, she is still a postdoc right now, but I think a very special one. And the reason that I think it is uh, super interesting to hear what, he ha what she has to say is that she is right in the middle of kicking ass. She is uh, someone who is going to go on to do phenomenal things. And so whatever she is doing right now, you can be more or less certain that that is something uh, that is taking her along that path. Uh, to something very uh, uh, fantastic and something very great. So she is uh, incredibly interesting to hear from, and you're going to really enjoy this interview. She uh, is an evolutionary anthropologist studying how different cultures and ecological environments shape the developing mind. She did her bachelor's in anthropology at UCLA, uh, which is my alma mater, and she did her, her uh, uh, PhD in biological anthropology at Yale. So she is currently a postdoc uh, in the Cooperation Lab at Boston College. I am very excited to introduce to you Dorsa Amin. All right, Dorsa, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, so uh, I'm a big fan of your background and your work, and so I'm really excited to get into what you do. And to start that off, uh, why don't you tell me what your average day looks like so we can just sort of get a concrete picture of what it is uh, that you get up to on a daily basis. Oh, sure. Okay. So uh, I tend to wake up on the earlier side and I really am a slow riser. I like to take it slowly in the morning. I wake up, I feed the cats, I check the news, I take a shower and I kind of check into my schedule for the day and mentally prepare myself for it. Uh, I usually go to the office on weekdays. Um, I drive in, which is embarrassing because it's really close, and it's one of my greatest faults, I think, because um, it's about, I want to say, less than a mile away, and I still drive, so I'm going to admit that on the podcast. Um, I go in, and I think that the thing that really helps um, in general with planning is that in for every week, I have a plan of what my goals are for each of those weekdays, so I do this thing called strategic planning, uh, where at the beginning of each semester, I sit down and I... Um, figure out, you know, what are my main aims this semester, the big picture stuff, and then the little picture stuff that accomplishes those aims, and then I spend some time actually scheduling those little things into my calendar. So basically every day I know um, what is going to take up my time in terms of meetings and uh, uh, lab meetings or, or, or other things that are taking my time in that capacity. And then I also have a list of um, actual tasks that I hope to accomplish with an estimate of how long it's going to take. So. I take a very structured approach to my work um, and generally try as much as I can to work efficiently. So let's dig into strategic planning. Is that someone else's uh, idea that you have adopted for yourself or is that something that you have developed on your own? Yeah, so I think I independently co-discovered this. Um, it was given a name to me by uh, my advisor, Katie McAuliffe, who does this professional development training and they taught her these strategies and she taught it to the lab. Um, so I think it's easier to refer to it by its name. Um, but the general idea is that uh, having something like a goal that's just, you know, finish writing this manuscript is kind of an abstract and open-ended goal. It's really hard to anticipate how long that's going to take or what each of the incremental steps are that are going to get you to that goal. And so the idea is to um, be more specific and call your shots a little bit better. So writing that manuscript, what does that mean? Well, um, first, I have to write the introduction, and in order to write the introduction, I have these lists of papers that I really want to go through and try to craft um, an opening argument using these papers. Okay, so that is a much more actionable task, right? 
So what I put into my calendar is not write the introduction or write the manuscript. What I put in is um, you know, go over the literature review on this topic and outline the argument for the introduction. And I estimate based on my past work how long that's going to take me. And I actually have a calendar in my Google Calendar called actionable tasks. So these are actual things um, that I expect myself to do and the time um, that I think it's going to take me. And that's constantly being refined. And of course, it's like going to change on a week-to-week -week basis. But instead of you know deleting that task from my calendar, I can just move it to another day, let's say. Um, but I think it makes the process a lot more tractable. Uh, so it's not just this like abstract thing that you're doing. Um, and it, it just makes it a lot easier, I think, to plan in other parts of my day around it. Uh, and I found that to be largely successful. And then, yes, like this the past year, I found out that there was a name and these actual strategies um, for getting to that end goal uh, that I seem to have kind of done on my own. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. So is so. It the way you know that what you uh, that you accomplished your goal on a given day is specifically the tasks you got done and not necessarily the time you spent on it That's is right. that still the case yeah. yeah yeah and so what do you think the trade off is there cuz like how often are you going to be precisely um, accurate in your forecast about how long something's going to take yeah, are you generally I mean, pretty pretty on about that right i mean i think i'm actually getting better at it and i think over time you start to get a better estimate of how long things take you and and the amount of work that's involved um, and it's, you know, obviously not super concrete, right? It's just the general idea of like this week, what are the types of things that I have coming up that I think I can accomplish? Um, what's the best way to, you know, fit those into the other things I have going on that week? And there's flexibility, uh, but I think it really helps me, um, you know, in a world where a lot of what we do is self-regulated. Uh, and there are some things that have deadlines, but a lot of the things that are important are your own projects that you're leading. and. I think a lot of people struggle with that because it's um, it's hard to get accountability, right? So when you're the one leading it, if you're late on it, you're the person you're disappointing. And that often seems like a cost that's easier to bear than disappointing other people. And so what I found um, in the years is that when there's accountability, it's a lot easier to get things done, especially when there's other people involved. Um, but when it's just you holding yourself accountable, it's a lot easier to punt those things down the road. Um, and so I think there, it's good to incorporate some methods, whatever they may be, to make those tasks um, more like accountable internally and figure out a way to actually get things done in a way that's efficient. And I think that's been my primary goal in trying to figure out, like, um, you know, in this unstructured environment of academic work, what's the process and the procedure that's going to work for me personally to actually get things done. Uh, so what I'd like to talk about next is, uh, so you're like the, the overall sort of structure of, of what you're interested in is the cultural and ecological environments that shape the developing mind, right? And uh, your research is impressive uh, for one reason, because it draws on an atypically broad collection of ideas. And, you know, that could include developmental psych, uh, evolutionary anthropology, biology, decision science, all that sort of stuff. And uh, so I'd like to dig in a little bit into how all those interests came together for you. So is there an instance that you can think of where you first became interested in mind and biology and culture and all that? Uh, you know, I think as humans, this is one deep interest of ours is figuring out the social world around us and trying to figure out how we fit into it. Um, I think the natural interest is there, at least. Um, but in uh, undergrad, I was actually planning on going to medical school. We have a lot of medical professionals in our family. That seemed like the easiest way to go. And as an elective, I took two classes that really changed the course of my thinking. One of them was um, Introduction to Biological Anthropology with Robert Boyd, who was at UCLA at the time, and The Evolution of Human Sexual Behavior, which was with Daniel Fessler. And both of those classes, I think, had a really deep impact on the way that I thought about the world, um, especially incorporating like an evolutionary perspective into understanding humans. And really, like the core principle from bioanthro is that you can study humans like you study any other animal, right? And all the principles that you use to study, let's say macaques or cheetahs, those same principles and, and um, uh, procedures are just as applicable to studying humans. And I found that a really revolutionary way to think about um, us, you know, as, as humans and myself as a human being. And it's one of those things that I feel like 
um, you can't let it not color your world. It's kind of impossible to unlearn it. And I think it just meshed really well with, you know, how I interact with the world, how I think about other people, and, and the types of things that I observe and think about really seem to be in line with this perspective. And so it was just so appealing. Um, I started taking more and more classes in anthropology and really getting deeper into um, that perspective to the point where I, I majored in it. Um, and up until the last moment, I was still preparing to go to medical school, but I think I had this, I actually made a big pros and cons list that I still have now about which path to go down. Um, and ultimately decided to, to go to graduate school for anthropology, which I did at UCLA, as you mentioned. And I think it, every day that I'm further away from that decision, um, the more convinced I am that it was a terrific decision. <laughs> like, it was one of the most defining moments of my life. And I, I actually think I, I did well in that decision-making process. Um, which is unusual for me because, you know, I study, one of the things I study is risk preferences and I'm very aware of the fact that I am very risk averse. Um, I really hate taking risks. I don't like uncertainty. Um, and this is kind of a big risk, I think, um, going from this structured path to this one that's a lot more unstructured and a bit riskier, I think. But uh, ultimately for me, it ended up being a really good decision. Yeah, so t maybe uh, can you say a little bit more about how exactly you made that decision and you had your pros and cons lists and everything, um, but was it a difficult thing to do to sort of give up on this long-held family uh, sort of uh, almost expectation and go into something that maybe is a little bit less certain in terms of anthropological research? What, what exactly did that look like for you? Yeah, I mean, that really is a tough decision. And I think, so there are a couple things I say, especially when I'm talking to um, undergrads who are in a similar spot, is that I think there's a tendency, um, in the culture at least, to um, have this, like, to think that there's this dawning moment where one day you wake up and you suddenly know what your passion and your purpose is, and it dawns on you what you should have done. Um, and what I found in my experience is that decisions, especially big decisions, rarely work like that. Um, and I guess over time, what I've come to really understand is that making a reasoned decision and trying to understand, like, what are the probabilities that this is going to succeed and make me happy, and really thinking through the process um, over time is the best way I've found to come to a decision. Um, and I think that's hard for people to um, grapple with when they're raised in a world that thinks that there is this moment that you know. Um, so that's what I always tell people, you know, it took me a really long time to come to the decision. I, yes, I, I make pros and cons. I actually, and I, I could have a copy of it up to, uh, that I could refer to at some point, but I really thought about, you know, um, how will this work for me? What are the things about it that I find uncertain? Um, what are the things about it that I like or I don't like? And I talked to lots of other people about it. I really like brainstormed with many other people in the profession. And actually, one thing that was very interesting um, was that I was reading about the, uh, Charles Darwin's biography. And one of the things that he mentioned was um, dropping out of, uh, I think he actually went to medical school or was planning on going to medical school and dropped out because he found it too gory. Like he was very sensitive to the sight of um, blood and surgery. And I always related to that. And I kept thinking like, well, me and Darwin have this like <laughs> shared shared aversion and, and you know he made this decision and it worked out okay not to say you know in any way that our paths are similar but um yeah I guess I just always respected that he did that um and knew himself well enough to know that that would be a difficult thing to deal with on a daily basis and I shared that aversion and I was kind of inspired by that too one thing that I really like about that is it kind of shares the same structure and motivation as the way you conceptualize your practical goals, right? Mm -hmm. Which is that, you know, you want to have some idea of, of what you need to get done and on a, on a long-term scale and what that's going to look like. But really, it's about breaking it down to what are you going to do today? Yeah. And I'm faced with, you know, a series of decisions today about how I'm going to spend my time and what I'm going to choose to do. And the extent to which you do that on a daily basis is going to uh, get you in the right place in the long term. You That's know? right. That's right. I do think ultimately it is, and this is an analogy from evolutionary biology, there's, um, there are different types of goals, right? There are ultimate goals and proximate goals. Um, so there are kind of like the bigger picture things of um, why and, and uh, the ultimate goal that you want to achieve. 
this ultimate thing, but then there are all the actual things you do, the proximate things you do to achieve that goal. And I've always found that analogy really helpful um, to thinking about lots of things, uh, especially when it comes to, to work. So you're clearly engaged in a, a pretty successful program of ass kicking right now in your <laughs> career. Um, and uh, but obviously you haven't done the majority of your career yet. And there's still lots of things to figure out how it's going to play out for you. And so I'm, I'm curious, what are your current insights about what your ultimate goals look like and maybe both uh, how they are forming for you and what you're still kind of uncertain about? Yeah, that's a good question. So I guess like like many other behavioral scientists, what I'm really curious about is why people be, uh, behave the way they do. Um, what are the types of things in their development? What are the types of things in their cultures um, that lead to the people they become as adults? Um, and one of the things I, I particularly like about uh, human behavior and my related interests, I think, kind of follow the same structure is that there are these millions of things that we do every day that we just take for granted. Um, we, you know, are really engaged in this like orchestra of complexity when it comes to social interactions and our daily tasks. We are doing millions and millions of just computations and decisions every day. And I think it's rare that people really stop and look under the hood of why they did a certain thing, um, or even the fact that it could be done differently. And I've always found that particular thing very interesting, things that are just so commonplace that you don't think twice about them. Um, but as Daniel Fessler actually once told me, the things that are the most common are probably the ones that have been under the most selection, right? Like the things that you just take for granted are a part of human life everywhere, um, are the things that are really integral um, to human life. So you take for granted that you're in a network of other people and there is you know, family and unrelated others near you. And you take for granted that you know we we have um, social interactions every day, and uh, there are pr proper ways in our culture to behave. Um, and I don't think people really stop to step back and question why we do those things. And I've always found that uh, very intriguing. So the ultimate goal of what I want to do is really dig deeper into that process, which I find you know very personally and professionally interesting. Um, and there are a number of proximate ways to do that, as we were talking about. So. Um, one is to adopt a developmental approach, and the other is to adopt a cross-cultural approach. And I think both of those are not just interesting, um, I think they're actually critical to really understanding human behavior. Um, as you may know, there's you know, a, a very persistent bias in behavioral science that seems to favor um, adults living in the West. And uh, we have done a lot of work on especially developmental psychology through those biases. Um, so we have tried to understand the world from this perspective that is not untethered in culture, right? The, the way that I think and the decisions that I make and even the way that I do my science now is in fact directly influenced by the culture that I grew up in. And so I think when you expand out to other cultures and you study the process of children coming to acquire the knowledge and information of their ecology and their culture to become adults, you really start to understand what that process looks like in a way that you cannot do when you're just in one place studying adults, right? Um, and so, yeah, like a lot, I think there's, I mean, I just, I have a lot of research interests. Um, the things that I'm particularly interested in now is decision making. So what are um, our preferences? So one of the things I talked about was uh, risk and uncertainty. So what are the types of things that um, help shape our preferences for against uncertainty? How is that influenced by the local ecology? How is that influenced by the local culture? How do experiences in our early life translate to different preferences in adult life? Um, and how do we go out and actually try to explore those processes systematically? So there's a lot of things that I want to unpack in that. And maybe to start off with, um, going back to your ultimate interests, one of the things, uh, some of the stuff that you were talking about reminds me of the uh, one of the ways that you opened your TED Talk, which was a sort of classic definition of anthropology, which is that it is to make the familiar strange and the strange uh, familiar, which I'm, I'm paraphrasing, uh, so I might have gotten slightly wrong. No, that's but that's a, um, um, 
I think, a, a really interesting and powerful uh, sort of insight and way to frame it. And I'm wondering, do you have your own sort of personal definition for uh, what successful anthropology looks like? Oh, that's a good question. Well, first I'll say, I, I, yeah. Can, can I, so just to motivate this a little bit more, uh, what I'm thinking of is that anthropologists, more so than most disciplines, have spilled a great deal of ink trying to discuss, oh, well, what is exactly is anthropology and what are the goals here and what does it look like and who should be doing it and who should we be talking about and how should we be talking about them? Mm-hmm. So I'm just kind of interested uh, in, in you, in, in your perspective on, on how you as an anthropologist uh, who also has fingers in a lot of different fields think about that. Yeah, so the first thing I'll say is that anthropology is a very diverse field. So historically, it's broken down into um, four subfields. This is the four uh, field model of anthropology. So there's um, archaeology, there is linguistic anthropology. So how do people use language in ways to perform their identity? There is sociocultural anthropology, which is really um, interested in trying to understand the processes um, in which people express themselves in culture and how that changes over time. It's, um, I would classify it more on the humanity side. Um, there is uh, biological anthropology, which is what I do. Um, and that is more of like a, um, an application of um, biological methods to studying humans, essentially. So studying them like you would any other primate. So my experience is, I mean, I was trained in four field anthropology in undergrad, Um, But the majority of my experience has been through biological anthropology. So I definitely don't want to speak for the whole field because I think there's a real um, huge amount of diversity in opinion and perspectives. Yeah, Um, and I guess just to flag that, I was um, sort of thinking more of the the humanities uh, cultural anthropology side in in what I was uh, asking. But... um, yeah, go ahead. Speak. Yeah, to I think that. that's. I think that's a little bit hard to answer, and I definitely don't want to, you know, put words in the mouth of my colleagues. Um, I think there are just different ways of looking at the world, honestly. And um, I heard this quote recently that stuck with me, which was that um, different disciplines are looking at reality from different angles. Um, so we're all seeing the same thing, but we're just looking at it slightly differently. And I think there's a lot of value in those different perspectives for different reasons, right? So it really depends on ultimately what your question is and what you're trying to accomplish. Um, and again, I can only speak to you know, my experience largely in biological anthropology. Um, but I do think that there is um, a lot of fertile ground between uh, the humanities and the sciences. And uh, I think a lot of what I do is driven by a lot of insights from cultural anthropology as well. Um, and really understanding you know, that I think there's a tendency to uh, study people in different cultures. And when you find differences, you just say it's because of culture. Right. Um, and I think there's a lot more unpacking that needs to be done about what we mean when we say that. Like, what, what about culture? Right. Like, it can't just be a catch all for all the differences. And I think that's when really getting into the cultural and historical and ethnographic perspectives of the context that you're working with is really important to understanding what you're actually doing and really understanding the you know, human beings that you're interacting with and collaborating with and trying to situate them within this historical and cultural perspective. Um, so I don't think you can really, you know, you can't divorce them entirely, and I think that would be um, unhelpful. Very cool. So one thing that I'm kind of interested in um, that's related to that is, so how do you think being so uh, interdisciplinary affects the way you see your career developing, right? Because you, you have background as a biological anthropologist, currently working in a psychology department. Um, do you think it's it's tougher because no one kind of sees you as directly their own same thing, or does it help because you can reasonably fit into so many spheres? How do you see that playing out currently in your career? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think this is actually one of the other paths in my life where I unexpectedly did the more risky thing. Um, but mostly because I believe it's, it's um, the frontier in a lot of ways, right? There's um, this, actually, I think I wrote about this in my statement of purpose for um, graduate school, but there's a paper by Campbell looking at um, the fish scale model of disciplines, I believe. And I'm paraphrasing from you know many years ago, but the idea is that when you have um, uh, disciplines that are studying these like non-overlapping processes and ideas, you get these fish scales that are you know near each other, but orthogonal. And there's 
no reason that we need to organize the scientific field like that. Because in fact, as I said before, we're all studying the same thing from different angles. And um, when we join forces and really collaborate across these disciplines, there's a lot of, um, I think, fertile foundation to have new ideas and interesting ideas and um, study things in a way that you wouldn't if you just did the same thing that your discipline has been doing for 20 years. Um, I do think it's a little bit risky. Um, and I think one of the reasons it's hard to do good interdisciplinary work is that it is hard to be bilingual in two languages. So to really do work that speaks to multiple disciplines, you have to not only understand the history of that discipline, the perspectives and the methodologies from that discipline, but also be able to translate what you've done to them in a way that they can actually understand and integrate into how they think. And I think the reason that it's probably done less frequently is that it's very challenging, honestly, because there's a lot of information. Um, and I think one of the reasons I was able to do this, I mean, I hope successfully, but we'll see, is um, uh, my graduate training was basically done in two departments. So I was told I needed to take um, 16 courses for my PhD. And I think I took about half, if not more than half of them, in the psychology department um, and the remaining in the anthropology department. And I think that allowed me to create um, a working body of knowledge about how these fields work in a way that's really helpful to translating the stuff back um, into those languages. Uh, but again, I think it is risky because yes, like I think there is a tendency to um, not stray from the familiar, right? People in general, I think, are risk averse. And when there's a, a new scholar, let's say, on the job market who's doing um, building upon the work of this really rich, you know, line of work in some discipline, it's a lot easier to integrate that into your way of thinking. Uh, and I think it's a little bit harder to pitch something that's kind of like, uh, you know, radically different or proposes something that involves more, more processing and understanding um, of what that work is. Uh, but I guess I'm willing to personally take that risk because I, I really do believe that it's important. Um, and uh, I hope at least that this is the way that the future is going to go. Like these disciplines are, they can't remain non-overlapping forever, right? And there is, again, some amount of risk in trying to weave them together, but I think um, the benefits, at least personally, I think outweigh the costs. Yeah, there does seem to me like there is a sort of trade-off at time scales here, which is that in the short term, it certainly feels like the more lucrative thing to do is to have well-defined interests that people identify the value of because they're an immediate extension of something that has uh, existing and obvious value. And when you bring someone a new idea, it's much more difficult to evaluate how, evaluate how um, valuable and impactful that idea is going to be. And so your, your risk is sort of um, being able to stay in the game long enough to develop the obvious uh, value in, in, in your ideas that uh, will only be uh, sort of reach fruition in uh, a longer term, a longer time horizon, something that's more a, an immediate sort of uh, making strides on something. Yeah, and I will say, you know, the type of work that I do, so anyone that does developmental work knows that it takes longer, right, to recruit and work with children and um, adolescents. It really is a long process. And anyone that does cross-cultural developmental work will know that that is uh, even more time-intensive and longer than just developmental work. So. Um, to really like from the beginning of when you know we have a project idea to the time that really it's been piloted and collected and deployed across cultures, that can take uh, you know years, and it, in in the past it has. And uh, again, I think it's so funny. I I never thought of myself as a risky person, but all of these things have some degree of risk that I feel like I'm internalizing. Um, that's a risky strategy too, right? Because we're living in a world where, um, especially in the academic job market. Um, people want to see both high quality and high quantity papers. And um, the logistics of the work that I do just make it impossible really to have very high turnover and lots of publications, um, which is why I really um, subscribe to the slow science movement, hashtag slow science, this idea that um, investing in projects and really trying to do them well and investing in things that are worthwhile are ultimately um, a good model for how to push science forward. And uh, I, I hope and I, I do think I see some of that cropping up, especially in psychology. Um, 
this this reshifting of the scales a bit where it seems like there was this and I'll use a technical term um, runaway selection right so you have um, high quantity being selected for um, at some point you realize maybe that's sacrificing quality and you kind of try to shift the pendulum back um, and I have seen signs that, that that might be something that people are trying to do and I think that's where my, my work fits in. You know, God bless you for doing both uh, <laughs> developmental work and, in, uh, you know, intercultural work, because, oh, my God, I can't, I can't even imagine logistics. <laughs> yeah, there. it's tough. It's tough. So I do want to talk about your field work, especially that first trip to the Schwar. Yeah. Um, but there's something I want to touch on first that I kind of just want to uh, see what, what you make of, which is that one thing that I'm interested in. So in addition to this sort of quantity versus quality trade-off that we're seeing in academia, I do think that there's also a trend of the trade-off between, um, you know, sort of ecological validity and uh, these highly rigorous, uh, you know, uh, uh, internal validity studies. And psychology, because like every other uh, social science, wants to uh, be as scientific as possible, has in a lot of ways optimized for these very, uh, you know, easily quantified uh, aspects of human behavior and human experience because we can run these very nice convincing laboratory experiments on them. However, this this comes uh, sort of at the risk of having that behavior being really uh, only representative of something in the laboratory because the experiments are so contrived and missing out on the messiness uh, of humans out in the real world doing real world things. So do you, is that also something that you think about, especially someone coming to psychology with an anthropological background, uh, that you feel that that uh, trade-off is, is, is somehow important in what you do? Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, I can, I can see a world in which those things are seen as strengths and used together to produce good work as opposed to um, seeing them really as opposites. So I think in a in a good, like, anthropologically intensive way of looking at the world, you observe variation, right? So you observe people, you live with them, you read ethnographies, you really try to understand another culture. Um, and then maybe that leads to research ideas or questions that you can then try to distill down into these tasks that are quantifiable. And then you are able in some way to kind of extract from the messiness this distilled version of the world that you can compare. Um, and then maybe you can use that again to zoom out and try to understand variation in a different way. And I think those things can work in conjunction with each other really well. Um, but I do agree that, you know, it's it's hard to just do one and not the other or, you know, just look at um, these quantifiable measures that are done in the lab and lose the contextual richness. Um, but I guess I just think that's not, it doesn't have to be that way. Um, and there's probably a way to link those two together and try to use them at the appropriate times um, to try and understand the world. All right, let's jump into your field work. So uh, can you tell me a little bit about, um, yeah, so what did, that, what did that look like? You went to Ecuador, I think it was. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, how long did you spend there? What was that like? Did you keep a field diary? What's it like looking back on what you wrote in there? Uh, those those sort of things. Yeah, sure. So um, my first field trip, so I um, had done some field work before in the past, but actually with macaques and not with humans. I was in uh, Morocco for about three months um, studying barbary macaques. Oh, uh, wow. I know, and that was, that was a really wonderful experience um, in many ways. One, because I kind of got to experience what field work was like in general, you know, being in another country, um, the kind of, again, the proximate tasks of doing this type of thing that I got more familiar with. Um, but in my first year of graduate school, I had the opportunity to go down to Ecuador, as you mentioned. Um, my advisor, Rick Friviascas, was, um, had recently joined this larger project called the Schwar Health and Life History Project, which is um, housed out of the University of Oregon. And they have been working with the Schwar, who are an indigenous population in the Ecuadorian Amazon, um, for, I believe, like 14 years. And so I got to go down on one of these trips. And the first trip I went down, um, I wasn't really running my own stuff. I was just down there to kind of experience what it's like. Try And like I was saying, you know, to you, like, go out there and just observe and try to understand what that world is like before I really start forming a research question that I'm going to go down there and test. 
And again, like that's one trade-off between quantity, right? Because uh, there was a field season where I guess I could have been collecting something. And I, I think I did pilot um, something, if I recall correctly, um, that didn't end up really working. And that was also a good experience in itself. Um, but I really went down there to just see what it was like. Uh, and that, I think, was a great decision. So um, we work with populations, um, or communities, I should say, uh, that are scattered, actually, all throughout um, southeastern Ecuador. So there uh, has been a lot of market integration, but a lot of differences in these communities as well. So um, they were traditionally in this Amazonian region um, on the border with Peru. And over time, like the government built these roads that cut through some of those territories. And so you get this like range of market integration where you get some kids that are living um, or some you know, communities that are living near cities. And then you have some communities that are way deeper in the jungle and only accessible through water. Um, so the first year that I went down there, we went to one of these more remote communities. So we. Um, went down to the port. It's a long trek from Quito all the way down to the border of Peru. Um, we got on this canoe, which I really loved. The canoe rides are my favorite because I just feel like such an anthropologist. I'm like, yeah, I'm really doing it. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, we, there's no psychologist that has to take a canoe to work, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was really, I, like, I think it's just great to do, you know, just live or take a, get a little flavor of what life is like in these places, right? Um, so we took this canoe down into this community, and I think we were there. I think the whole trip was about a month and a half, two months, something like that. Uh, and on average, that's a, about how long we spend down there. Um, uh, and it really varies how much time you get to go in the communities. Like the second year I was there, um, there was um, all these like government protests, and they started um, closing the streets, so we had to evacuate basically. And then uh, Cotopaxi, this volcano near where we were, erupted. And so we had to fly home. So you know, you really don't know what field work is going to be like. And there's almost no way to prepare for it. Um, but it was really, I think, a, a tremendously interesting and you know, challenging experience in a lot of ways being down there. So the communities that we're in, so I should just say the Shuar are um, a forager horticulturalist group. So they. Um, grow uh, garden crops, so they have things like yucca and plantain, um, they hunt wild game, they uh, fish, that's actually a big source of food is fish. Um, and in, in the remoter communities that we're in, I think people are still practicing um, these ways of life a lot more than in the communities that are near the cities. And so I think you get to you know observe and really have be fortunate enough to, to participate in one of the last remaining um, societies in the world that is not fully industrialized, right? Industrialization is not a huge part of how they live their life. And there is something really um, just fascinating and, and magical about observing, you know, human life in a way that's not the way that I have been living it. Um, and I think a lot of my research interests and ideas came from that first year, just kind of observing and learning and, and getting to know a lot of the wonderful people down there. What was the low point of your field work, either um, in Morocco or Ecuador or elsewhere? Oh, that's interesting. So what I will say is that like before I went down there, um, I think it was Melissa Liebert. She was a graduate student at the time who had been down there many times before me. And I asked her what I should prepare for. And she said, it's going to be you know, one of the most physically and psychologically challenging experiences of your life. And I don't think that was undersold. I think that was exactly accurate. Um, so we'll start with physically. So, you know, when, when you head down there, as I was mentioning, um, there are no roads, so you're taking the canoe down, which means that you are responsible for literally physically carrying everything that you bring down there. Uh, and in our case, it was, you know, massive amounts of equipment and luggage. Um, and it's the, the only way to really transport things is to physically carry them. You know, so you're in the Amazon, it's like sometimes 100 degrees, it's like 99% humidity. There are insects and bugs everywhere. It's very, you know, it's a very um, high pathogen environment. And it's extremely physically challenging. And I really was not prepared enough for this. And then uh, future trips, I tried to actually like physically prepare myself by working out in different routines that would prepare me for the types of things that we do in the field work. Um, 
And I think that part of it I was really um, not quite prepared for. And then psychologically, I think um, one of the things that's very challenging uh, about being down there is that there, um, at the moment, is basically no, no infrastructure um, that has made its way in. So some of the communities that are like a little bit up the river have electricity, um, which they've kind of uh, jerry-rigged through you know, wires that they've set up from other communities. But there's nothing else. And importantly, there's no um, access to telecommunications. So you really just go into the, you go off the grid, literally, um, for sometimes weeks and weeks at a time and don't have any access to your life back in um, the United States or wherever it may be. And I think I was a little bit unprepared for that as well. Um, the, the positive part is that you really get to bond with and rely on um, this core team that you're down there with. Uh, but really, I think being, you know, suddenly very cut off from this world that you are so integrated in um, was a bit of a psychological shock as well. So, yeah, I think the, it was a very challenging first year. And I, this is, I'll tell you a little anecdote about this. Um, so one of the things that uh, the Schwarz sometimes do is they take um, uh, these substances that are um, seen as purification. So um, usually, like historically, before um, battles or some sort of um, important event, they would sometimes take uh, these substances, which are these plants that um, essentially make you throw up their emetics. And so they spend a lot of the night purging to prepare for whatever the most, you know, the important event is the next day. And so there was a night where um, the, our neighbors in, in the hut that we were sharing with them, um, the men was, were taking this uh, on a number of the nights that we were there because there were soccer games between the communities that were coming up, um, which I think is an, I mean, this is a tangent, but I think has kind of replaced um, intergroup warfare in an interesting way. And I remember actually one of the nights I got very sick suddenly. And I remember like going out of the hut, actually falling on my knees in the jungle, which was a really bad idea. You don't want to expose your skin in any way to the jungle. And I was just, just throwing up outside the hut all night and hoping someone could hear me so that they could come and help me. And it wasn't until morning that people got up and found me. And it turns out they thought I was one of the Schwar people, like purifying myself. And so they didn't think to come outside. They were like, oh, like someone's getting ready for the big game, you know? So just things like, things like that that I think really don't happen um, in your day-to-day -day life here and are just so far removed and are very you know, weird, new, interesting problems that you've never encountered. Um, there's really no way to really prepare for that uh, other than just going down there continuously. So I want to talk a little bit now about um, some of your more public-facing work. Um, you did a TEDx talk while you were still a postdoc, and uh, that's a huge opportunity. And, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, but it feels like doing it as a postdoc puts you quite a bit ahead of the curve. Um, so how did that opportunity come about for you? Yeah, so um, I had originally, so I, I will just say, like, I really, I really like public communication. I love science communication. Um, I think it is actually incumbent on us uh, scientists, especially those that are funded in any way through um, people's taxes through the federal government, um, to not just give back to your students and your, um, you know, whether in your courses or people that you're mentoring, but really give back to the community, right? We have this very privileged role in society that is like amazing that it even exists, which is that we are the frontiers of science. People invest in us to go out there and ask questions that are interesting and relevant to them. Um, and so I think this is an important part of our responsibility as scientists is to try and figure out how we can share what we've learned, not just with our colleagues in these closed doors and you know um, campuses, uh, but really everyone in the world who can benefit from it. And I think a lot of people are intensely curious about these types of questions, as I was mentioning before, right? Like, understanding us as a species is one of the most um, just inherently interesting questions that I think exists in the world. So that's, that's one of the reasons that I've, I've really tried as much as I can to um, reach out and share some of these insights with people. So um, that originally happened because I, um, I wrote a piece for, for Nautilus that I pitched. And that was, I think, my first like public piece that I wrote. Um, 
And it was about, you know, some of my observations when I was working with Ashwar and the contrast of coming back to the United States um, and really having, you know, that sudden experience of being there and then a week later being here um, kickstarts a lot of these comparisons in a way that's hard to do otherwise. And one of the things that I was thinking about a lot was that um, when I was there, this is actually, I think, my first trip. Um, in order to like welcome us to the, to the community, the syndico, which is like the um, community ruler, um, was going to sacrifice a chicken for us and cook it, which is kind of a big deal. They don't they don't do that that frequently. And um, I watched him actually instruct like his I think it was his daughter or granddaughter, this like younger person, um, to kill the chicken for us. And I like watched this person with their parent like kill this chicken, and I I'd never actually seen an animal killed before. I, I'm also a vegetarian, so this is like particularly salient to me. Um, and I guess the thing that really struck me was how nonchalant it was, right? Like no one seemed to think it was a big deal. Everyone was just like doing their normal thing. And I just kept thinking, like you know how. Uh, removed we are in the West from that experience um, and really thinking about the forces of like why like why is that so strange for kids to see and why have we made it such a weird thing um, you know where there's all these like instructional like journal you know articles and books about how to like tell your children that meat actually comes from animals like putting those pictures together is a challenging thing for parents to do here um, and so I wrote this post that um, I originally had called uh, I think it was the uh, the knowledge dam. So the fact that we um, put up these barriers for cultural transmission and we specifically don't tell our children about a lot of the things that they're going to encounter. Um, so things that are just like features of life, right? Like sex or death. We just don't really talk to them about it and in many cases actively avoid telling them. Um, and in that way, we are just forcing them to learn on their own without any scaffolding or support these things that they are inevitably going to come across. And so that was the first piece I wrote, and it was about this weird practice that we, you know, we engage in here, which is just actively withholding information, um, which is particularly strange because um, a lot of human life is built on cultural transmission. And so like, why are we doing this? Um, and so that, I think, uh, came out a few years ago and, and caught the interest of some of the people who are organizing TEDx Cambridge. So, they reached out to me and were wondering if I'd be interested in setting up a talk kind of related to those themes. Um, and I saw that as a great opportunity to, to have uh, a platform in which I could share some of these insights from my own experience and from literature and maybe try to get people to, again, look under the hood of some of the things that they're doing and start to question why they're doing what they're doing. And um, that ended up being, you know, a tremendously challenging, you know, it, it was. It was at the Boston Opera House. Um, I think it was sold out. There were thousands of people in the audience. I've never spoken to that many people before. Uh, so that was, I think, very personally uh, difficult to overcome. Um, but I think ultimately ended up being a really good opportunity to talk to more and more people um, about the type of thoughts that I have and, and the insights that I've learned through my job. So one thing that I find incredibly impressive about you is that you consistently give yourself opportunities to take risks and put yourself outside of your comfort zone, even though, and I'm going to trust you on this, uh, it's not aligned with your personality, that, you know, sort of sense of, 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 of risk taking. And I think that's really cool because there's something, I think it's something that prevents a lot of really intelligent people from realizing their full uh, potential is that they uh, expect to succeed and be relatively comfortable about the things that they're doing. And it is when you put yourself outside of that comfort zone and take those risks and have them work out that you get these really big uh, gains, both in terms of, you know, quantifiable career stuff, but also just your personal character development. And uh, it seems to me that you've done a great job of that between ditching medical school, doing field uh, work, uh, speaking uh, in front of these big public audiences. And so I'm interested, do you have any advice on how you developed that in yourself, that if there's a, an undergraduate or someone who um, you know, doesn't have that risk-taking personality profile, how do you get better at that sort of thing? 
Yeah, that's a terrific question. And I'm, I'm almost having like a bit of a crisis here because I started out by saying I'm risk averse. But as I'm hearing you describe it, it's like, actually, I do, you know. Obviously, there's there's some complexity to unpack there. For sure, it's saying you're not risk averse yeah. is not the entire story, is it? Yeah, so I guess I guess I would frame it as um, taking calculated risks, right? I'm not doing things that I think are going to put myself in harm's way or really do things just for the hell of doing it, but really trying to think like, what is the big picture and what are the ways to get there? And of course, I think in a lot of cases, that means doing things that are inconvenient. And I think inconvenience has been um, a contributing factor in why we have this persistent sampling bias um, in the psychological world and in behavioral science more broadly. So I guess what I would say is like, you know, think through the options and think about what the ultimate goal is and then try to reverse engineer what are the types of things you have to do to get to that goal? And so it's my goal, which, it, you know, as it is, is to understand, how, you know, how humans develop and how their behavior varies. Um, it seems really natural to do work with um, kids across cultures, right? And so I think that's the, the, that's the process that I went through. And then, you know, I was afforded this opportunity to go to Ecuador. And I took it because I thought it was a good idea. Right? I thought the benefits would outweigh the costs, and they did. It was calculated risk. Um, and I think that type of processing, this um, you know, conversation with yourself about where do I want to go and what are the steps to get there is really important. And people have different preferences. But I will say, like, honestly, I would not, if I had not known that I could do this, I don't know if I would pick myself out of a lineup as someone who would succeed at field work. Um, I really like creature comforts, you know, and like it was a surprise to me, honestly, that I could do it and do it well. Um, and I think that's something that I learned about myself kind of incrementally building up on these experiences, right? So I was in, um, first I traveled internationally, then I went and did fieldwork in Morocco, and then I went for a longer trip, and then a longer trip to Ecuador, and then I went to Uganda, and then I went to India. And over time, like, I learned more about the things that I'm capable of by, as you were saying, pushing out a little bit, a little bit, a little bit more outside of my comfort zone. Um, and what I found is that your behavior really matches the constraints of the situation that you're in. Like, you are a lot more resilient and flexible than you think. And this is something I discovered about myself. Um, and when I'm in fieldwork, like, I tap into what I call, like, fieldwork dorsa, who is, like, a related but distinct version of myself, who is suddenly way more flexible and way more, you know, able to deal with not being clean or being tired or whatever, like, it's just a different life out there. And it feels very distinct and actually possible. Um, and over time, I've really perfected, I think, the types of things that help me in those situations. So I guess, you know, what I would say is you, you continually surprise yourself. And the more that you push those boundaries, the more you learn what you're capable of. Um, and I would encourage you to do that. And then the things that you are both capable of and interested in, I would probe and push a little bit further. Well, uh, thanks for sharing that. That's really inspiring. And um, I do also think that that incremental pushing of boundaries is so key um, because even no matter where you start, if you are pushing that comfort zone incrementally in steps that are difficult for you, but that you're capable of, then over you know a period of years, that boundary is going to have expanded far more than you ever could have dreamed it would at the beginning. So I, uh, we're sort of coming towards the end here, and I have two other questions that I want to ask you. Um, and I mean, I have a million other questions I want to ask you, but <laughs> just for the sake of uh, being respectful of your time. Uh, so we, you touched on this a little bit at the beginning, which is that psychologists and a lot of behavioral and social scientists have focused on populations of, um, you know, uh, this one very specific demographic of humans, which we call weird, um, you know, uh, white, educated, so on and so forth. And um, that's clearly one thing that psychologists could do a better job of. And, and maybe there's more, there's obviously lots of stuff to unpack there. But what do you wish more psychologists could learn from anthropologists? That is a great question. So, Yes, I do think one is obviously expanding out to what um, Mike Gervin calls inconvenience samples. 
right? So not just people in other cultures, but also people within your own culture that are often neglected, right? So there's um, a study whose author I'm forgetting, but looking at developmental science and showing that the vast majority of people in, um, or children in developmental samples are white and affluent. Yeah, so the common thing to do is to recruit from families around the university um, who can come into the lab during work hours, um, which you know is already now selecting for a very small slice of whatever that population is. Um, and so I think, yeah, one of the things is just being aware of the biases that you have and trying to expand out and correct those if you're if what you're interested in is really studying something that's more generalizable. Um, and I think. Yeah, just, just in general, trying to adopt a perspective, uh, looking at humans not just as um, you know, me or the people we see today, but as being the, uh, the end result of a long series of uh, dynamic changes, both across evolutionary and ontogenetic time. I think it's very helpful. And I've always found this bias very peculiar, right? Like, um, like I have cats, you know, I look at my cat and I think, you know, everything that my cat does is a, is, a, is a product of the fact that it's a cat, right? Like the way it plays, the time it sleeps, what it eats is because it's a cat. And um, you look at your friend and you're like, oh, this is just Matt. <laughs> like you don't have the same thought process that you're actually looking at this like primate, this bipedal primate, you know, whose interests and behavior and physiology is shaped in exactly the same way. Um, and everything that it does, it does through its humanity. Um, and that perspective, I think, is so generative and so interesting and really, really commonly neglected. Uh, and I hope that that's another thing that, um, that uh, behavioral scientists, not just psychologists, can, can really take from anthropology more broadly. Well, I would certainly be interested in hearing more about this Matt's behavior, if it, if it is often difficult to remember that he is, in fact, human. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, that's really interesting, and I'm sure there's a lot more to unpack there, and uh, I, I do hope that psychologists can learn more from uh, the vast sort of uh, collection of knowledge that is held in anthropology, which I think is very poorly connected to um, psychology, especially to, to cognitive psychology. Uh, it's been very difficult to, to, to connect those, and historically they've been pretty divorced. Right, although I will say one of the core disciplines of cognitive science is anthropology. Um, in and theory, it's it is. Right. And but so, in practice, right. they, okay. there has been a huge disparity in that. Exactly. So I, I think that um, the project that, that pe people set out to accomplish with cognitive science, you know, starting in the 70s, if you look at, you know, sort of comparison between like Alan Newell and Clifford Geertz and what they were saying, mm -hmm. there was an insane amount of overlap, mm -hmm. um, even in the, the, the terminology that they were using. And then that has just not been followed up to nearly the extent um, that it could be. And that's not yeah. to say that it doesn't exist, but certainly that is one of those cases where uh, having diverged, when, when people are able to bring those perspectives back together, that's going to be hugely profitable. That's right. So. I totally agree. Um, okay, so I have something I'd like to end with, and um, I gave you a little bit of heads up about it in the email, though I didn't confirm whether or not you, you had any um, uh, insights about it. But the, the prompt is this. I'd like for you to paint a picture of your mind in three books. And uh, I, I'd be interested to hear um, this basically because, you know, I'm interested in, in what you've read uh, that has, you know, shaped you and what you think uh, you would really like to have other people be shaped by in reading. And it doesn't have to be your favorite or the best or this or that, but it's just three things from a, from a range of different books uh, you know, fiction or nonfiction, inside or outside your immediate, um, you know, expertise that that um, you think are representative of the unique way you think. Okay, very good question. Um, so I'm going to name three books that are nonfiction and unrelated to what I study, um, but reflective of this, you know, deeper question of um, how do we start to reassess the things that are very familiar to us. Um, and make the familiar strange. So the first one is a book called Made in America by Bill Bryson, and it is an etymological history of the English language. And my interest in etymology is very deeply related to all the processes that I said before, which is, you know, you, you're constantly using words in language, and you almost never 
are stopping to think like this word that I'm using has culturally evolved. Um, it's the product of hundreds, maybe thousands, maybe even more uh, years of evolution. It has a root, it has a history. Uh, and I I've always found that very fascinating. Again, just like reassessing these things that are so obvious that you don't even look at them. And this book um, for English speakers, especially American English speakers, I think is very interesting because it does exactly that. So it looks at um, the history of English words, and in particular those that are um, in the United States or unique to America, and traces their relationship with you know, the time at which they were coined, what was going on historically and politically, um, tracing it all the way back to the original populations, um, the westward expansion. And I think it's a really, uh, a really wonderful book um, that really gets you to look deeper into your language. Just FYI, I literally in front of me have Bill Bryson's Mother Tongue sitting on my oh, desk, which is his terrific. other uh, historical narrative book about language. Yeah. Um, and can confirm that uh, both are excellent sources of sort of historical insight into the way language has developed, um, particularly English, particularly in America and Britain. <laughs> yes, absolutely love that book. Um, uh, so a second one um, that I think is another really important book in um, that has influenced my way of thinking also historically is A People's History of the United States by, by Zinn. Um, and I think, again, this is a case where um, you're told this narrative of uh, history, in this case, American history, you learn it in schools, maybe you learn about some of the nuances. Um, but one of the things that I think is, is true about a lot of what you learn about how the world works is that it's biased. It's often written by people, you know, the winners are the ones writing history. And um, historically, a lot of um, that bias has come from largely white, largely men, um, uh, people who have really shaped history in, in, in influential ways. Um, but overlooked in those narratives is everyone else. And what I really like about this book is it's very careful reanalysis and retelling of a lot of the events in American history from the perspective of people who have been marginalized from women, from Native Americans and indigenous populations, from African Americans, um, and really, I think, presents a much more complex and rather painful history um, that might be different than the one that you learn in school. And I, that has really also influenced a lot of my thinking about um, politics, for instance. So number three, um, so this book is called The Devil in the White City, and it's by Eric Larson. And what I think, so this, on the surface, this book is about H.H. Um, H. Holmes, who is one of America's first serial killers. And it's happening against the backdrop of the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago. And um, what I find interesting about my approach to this book and maybe others' approach to this book is that um, it's not just about that. So the real topic of this book is about the World's Fair and how it came to be what it introduced and how it shaped American culture. And like simultaneously, there was the serial killer. And I think when people read that and when, you know, there's actually an adaptation of this book being made, I think Leonardo DiCaprio um, has the rights to it. Uh, it's about the serial killer. But what I really like about the book is the history of the World's Fair. And my friends routinely um, make fun of me for this because I'm constantly referencing the 1893 World's Fair, but it was like, so, uh, so important and left such an enduring mark on American culture and architecture. Uh, and so I think if that is of any interest to you, I would, I would highly recommend that as well. I love that. Um, yeah, no, and uh, to, to say something about your second choice as well, one thing that I'm looking at is right now in one of my projects is essentially a history of cognitive science uh, that starts around the time of George Boole in 1850. And um, there's definitely a lot of aspects of this story that have been explored before. And uh, one thing that has been a huge delight in the project is how easy it is to find incredible women thinkers who no one else has ever really spent much time talking about mm. because they were all there. And if you just do a little bit digger, uh, a little bit um, uh, deeper of a dig, you will find them. You start to read their stuff and you're like, well, they came up with all the good ideas like 100 years right. before everyone else. Yeah. And that is uh, as someone who is, you know, like currently looking into like historical narratives and that sort of stuff. 
Uh, obviously, it's terrible from a, a, a like a, a social standpoint, but from the greedy perspective of someone trying to write about it, it's like, oh yes, this is amazing. I can't believe no one has ever uh, touched on it. And yeah, so I think um, revisiting a lot of those canonical, um, you know, historical narratives that have been defined, you know, maybe we can even just say like before, uh, you know, like the last decade or something like that. Um, you know, this millennium, however you want to define when we really started to take those uh, seriously to the level we do now. I think those are beautiful. And uh, anything, as far as your third uh, pick goes, that you can do to bother your friends with uh, uh, stories of the uh, uh, World Fair uh, in 1800s and serial killers and Leo DiCaprio sounds great to me. So, awesome. Well, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to talk today. This has been really cool and... Um, You've really been a model podcast guest. I think that my uh, show would be greatly improved if instead of talking to different people every week, I just had you on and peppered (laughs) you with more and more questions uh, because you have such intriguing and and well-thought-out insights about everything. So, And it's also very interesting to hear your stories, especially, um, you know, when they take place in the rainforest on canoes and (laughs) in the jungle throwing up outside your hut. Yeah, very glamorous. (laughs) Well, thank you for taking the time to talk today, and uh, I look forward to speaking again soon. Yeah, same. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dorsa Amir. Uh, I find her to be just an incredibly inspiring person, and it's so cool to see someone who has such a vision for where they want to go and what steps they need to take to get there. And having that overarching vision and motivation for... um, you know, what a successful career would look like, and then being able to accomplish that by breaking it into small steps, both, you know, relatively large small steps by, you know, defining, oh, I can do this, I can do these studies in a cross-cultural way, or I can do them in a developmental way, all the way down through, well, what specifically am I going to work on over the next hour? And she just has the whole system connected, and I think that's very cool to see Um, And I know certainly for me, uh, there's a lot of work that I want to do on being able to create that holistic understanding of of where I am now and and, and both on a small scale and a large scale, what are the steps I need to take to get there. So thank you so much for listening this week. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, If you want to continue to follow Cognitive Evolution, go ahead and subscribe to whichever platform you're listening through. You can also follow me on Twitter at Cody Commerce or through my weekly newsletter on my website, codycommerce.com. I will see you back here next week.